0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank You, Father, for Easter. Thank You, Lord, for this one day each year in which we remember something that means so much to us every day of the year. That Your Son, Father, would come and die on a cross, not for His sake, not for His own cause, not because He had sinned or deserved to die, but because we needed someone to do what He did. And thank You, Father, that You did that. And Lord, this one day of the year is a chance for us to remember the significance of that day, to remind ourselves of what it, what it requires of us, of those who have believed, and what it can mean for so many more that have yet to know the truth. And we ask, Lord, that you just sober us this morning as we sit and we think about this and you, you focus our attention by the word. Prepare our hearts, Father. Let us become more effective in service to you from what we learned this morning so that the death that your son took upon himself for our sake would see fruit in the way we follow. And teach others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is easily the most joyful day on the calendar of the Christian year. It marks the day he rose. The scriptures say he rose on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. It's marked in a lot of ways. I know I can see around the room kids that are barely containing their excitement. My assumption is that's a combination of chocolate and jelly beans and who knows what else. Because the energy in the room is just tremendous. Except for the adults. I just mean the children. We have the Easter egg hunts. We have the gift baskets or some other gifts. We have people gather around the table usually on this day to have some big family meal. How many of you are planning a big family meal here in the next hour and a half? How many of you are unwilling to raise your hands? (laughs) Those meals can be a little awkward if you're in a blended family. You know what I mean by blended? Believers and unbelievers at the same table in the same family. Everyone sits down, and then suddenly there's this group recognition that, oh, this is a religious holiday, we, we ought to have somebody pray. And of course, where do all the eyes at the table turn? Right? To the one who knows the Lord, usually. And so there's that prayer before the meal. That reminds me of the story of a young boy named Bobby and his Christian family who were invited to Easter Sunday dinner at Grandma's house, and Grandma was a lady who was not particularly religious. And so everyone was seated around the table in that moment I just described, and the food is being served, and as soon as it comes to Bobby... And his plate appears in front of him. He just starts eating straight away at the meal. And right next to him is his mom. And his mom leans over and says, Bobby, wait for Grace. And then Bobby says, I don't have to. And keeps eating. And then the father looks over forcefully and says, Yes, you do, Robert. We always say (laughs) prayer before we eat at our house. And the young boy says, This isn't our house. We're at Grandma's house. And she knows how to cook. (laughs) Now... Just a word of caution. Do not try this out, kids, on mom at home, okay? not going to go well. I love that story because Bobby's conviction that rituals and habits are connected to some underlying meaning is true, right? There's a reason we do everything we do. But it's also a good example in that he didn't understand the underlying ritual. He thought it was about food safety, right? (laughs) But in reality, you thank the Lord you know, routinely as a ritual before you eat, not as a requirement, nor in the Bible does it say you have to pray before every meal, but we do it typically because we want to thank the Lord for his goodness, right? It's an opportunity to witness to that effect. And frankly, friends, that's the same reason at its core for why pastors like me do sermons on Easter, why we sit and we listen to some message about the day, because it's so vitally important that we don't turn this into ritual, Absent some bigger meaning, and the meaning of Easter is all important. We have to remember why it was necessary Christ would die. I remember pastors saying that you know when you preach the gospel, you have to preach it to Christians most of all, and I think that's an absolute truth because for many of us, we take for granted what we know and we move out in a life dedicated to serving the Lord or to some degree we do and we disconnect our rituals from the meaning that they had in the beginning or we can if we're not careful so for this morning I'd like us to hear from the Apostle Paul again briefly on his summary of the work of Christ on the cross and what that means for those of us who have believed so it's in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 I'll begin reading in verse 14 and if you have your Bibles with you and I hope you do Please open there and and read along silently with me as we go through this passage. Verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, just a light little Sunday message. So this letter is is one of two we have in the New Testament from Paul to the city of Corinth. There was actually a third letter he wrote that we don't have anymore. But we know of it because Paul refers to it at one point in his letters. But of the two we do have, this is the second one, obviously, it's 2 Corinthians it's called. And in this letter, up about till this point, Paul's been explaining to the believers in that city why... He goes about risking life and limb constantly in order to spread the gospel. Because that's a good question when you think about it. Why, Paul, do you keep taking such terrible risks for this message? What Paul's been teaching up to this point is that he has as his ambition, whether he's alive or when and how he dies, he ultimately wants to make his entire existence about serving the Lord and pleasing him. He'll please him in his life. He'll please him in his death if that's what God wants. He talked at one point just a little earlier in this letter about having to stand before Christ for judgment now this is a believer having to stand before Christ for the judgment that all believers will face and so he says I live in this healthy fear of the Lord knowing that there is this judgment understanding that he has died for me resisting sin working diligently that's the life he's called me to lead and now what we see in this passage is his reasoning for why that is how he lives for why it's necessary that he make those sacrifices And Paul says in the beginning here, in verse 14, that it is the love of Christ that starts the argument. But friends, when he says love of Christ, he says specifically what he means. We use the word love in a lot of ways in our culture. Loving chocolate, loving the spurs. Well, that one's okay. You can do that. But, you know, loving your spouse, loving your kids, loving, loving, loving. We use the term in a very general sense. Paul doesn't want you to think strictly in a general sense, as if it were just emotive. People talk about loving Christ and something inside you says, you know what, I've never quite understood that. I don't really have this warm, fuzzy feeling about Jesus. In fact, religion to me feels a little bit cold and sterile. I don't know how you can love something like Jesus. Well, part of the problem may be you don't understand the way the Bible uses the word. Love is not a feeling. Love is a verb in the Bible. It speaks to actions, to thinking. And Paul says, the love Christ had for us is evidenced by the fact that he died for you. That he died on the cross. That's love. Dying for someone is love. Trust me, he wasn't feeling warm, fuzzy feelings when he was dying on the cross. It's not about a feeling. It's about an action. And Paul says that love constrains us. In fact, he uses the word control. The love of Christ controls us. But the sense there in Greek, the word is seneko in Greek. It doesn't mean control as in like a puppet master making someone do what they don't want to do. It means constrain in the sense of focus points you at something. And in that sense, it constrains you in healthy, productive ways. It calls you to live a certain way because someone died for you. And let me give you an analogy that I think is in keeping with what Paul's saying. You and I have all heard stories at times of soldiers in battle. Maybe they're sitting in a foxhole under fire. Maybe they're in uh, the room of a house during a firefight with the enemy in the street. And it looks as though in that moment, everyone in that platoon is going to die that day because of the circumstances they're in, right? You've heard of these stories or you see these movies, right? And then suddenly, one of those soldiers takes a heroic step to save the lives of his comrades. Maybe he throws himself on the grenade that's thrown through the window. Or maybe he runs out into the teeth of the enemy's fire and he draws their attention so that his comrades can escape out and save themselves, right? At his own expense, he does something like that. In a sense, that's what Paul is saying here when he talks about what Christ did out of love for us. Christ put himself on a cross to let himself be a sacrifice on that cross for our sake. And he did that, he took that cruel death, Paul says, as a payment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay that price on our own behalf. So another way to say it is he threw himself on a grenade for us. Only the difference here, of course, is that the grenade we're talking about here is one of eternal death. Eternal, permanent separation from God in a place of eternal torment, according to Scripture. That was the alternative to Christ's payment for our sake. So Paul says in verse 15, that's why we now live. And again, he's not speaking about the physical body, because friends, our earthly bodies are going to go back to the grave. That's a given. But he's talking about our spirit, that we will not suffer what the Bible calls the second death, eternal separation from God, because Christ has paid the penalty for that on our behalf in a nutshell that's the meaning of easter that's why we're doing this every year that's why we have this celebration i know the eggs and the bunnies and all of that are, are fine and kids love that stuff some christians consider it a distraction from the truth of easter but either way jesus fell on a grenade for you but like the soldier in the story i gave you a moment ago what do you think his expectations are of his comrades after he dies i mean if we could imagine he's he's conscious somewhere in heaven and he's thinking about what he did to save his buddies what is his expectation now for them if that soldier has made the highest sacrifice possible otherwise everyone in his platoon would be dead now what does he expect wouldn't you agree that he would expect them to go out and fulfill the mission that they were expected to fulfill and to do so with All the greater urgency and dedication in order to honor his sacrifice. Wouldn't that be the expectation? How do you think that soldier would feel if he got up into heaven and and he was told, you know, great thing you did. I mean, awesome. But let me tell you what your friends did. Right after that, they all surrendered. And they all became traitors. Wouldn't that just totally gut the meaning of what you did, right? Rob it of its potential power. In the sense that it didn't serve any greater purpose at that point. Well, in this case, I think that's what Paul's talking about as he talks to the Christian. Paul says to every believer, in connection to Christ's death on the cross, verse 15, he says, No longer live for yourself. That is to say, don't take Christ's death and rob it of its significance in your life by just going back to the old life you used to know, which in a sense would be supporting the enemy. The enemy of of God, the enemy of all believers, Satan. But instead, Paul says, I want you to live a life that supports the mission that he had when he came. You know, we're in his place now. We are serving uh, in the sense that our physical body is here when he is not. We are his hands and his feet, as some would say. So we serve him by doing the mission he came to do now that he's no longer physically on the earth. And so now Paul begins to outline what that looks like. And there's some very interesting language Paul uses here. And I I want to challenge you to think twice about some of the things you may have seen as you've looked at this passage, or if you've ever looked at it. Look what he says in verse 16. Paul says we have to change the way we see people. Look what he says. He says, no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh. You know what he means? Here's what he means. He means you and I can no longer afford to see people merely in terms of their earthly existence. That is to say, in the flesh of their earthly body. Verse 16, Paul draws a comparison of the way believers in the first century knew Jesus. He says, you know, there was a day when you knew Jesus in the flesh. And he's speaking to people who were alive when Jesus was on the earth. This was written in a, roughly the 50s, maybe as late as 60 A.D., And there's still plenty of people at that point in history who had been alive in A.D. 33 when Jesus had walked himself into Jerusalem and died on that cross. So Paul is saying, you know, you used to know Jesus in the flesh. You saw him on the earth at one point, but you don't know him that way now. There's nowhere I can go on earth to go find him in that sense. How do I know him now? How did they know him? They had come to know him now as something much more than merely a human being. They knew him now as God incarnate, risen from the dead, living in them by faith, by means of his spirit. That was an exponential change in their knowledge of him. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, a huge percentage of the people who were now believers in Corinth had no regard for Christ whatsoever in the time that he actually walked the earth. For all the intents and purposes, they ignored him when they could have seen him in the flesh properly. But now they know him truly by faith. So Paul says, using that example, how do you look at others on the earth now, since Christ has died for you and you now live to serve him? He says, look at each other, not in an earthly fleshly sense, that is to say, stop looking at other people in the church, and we're talking here now specifically believers, don't look at them for their faults. Yeah, there are people around us who have sin, and we probably know many of them well enough to know what most of their sin is, but we aren't supposed to look at them that way any longer. They may not be kind or forgiving at times. They may do any number of things to offend us. Forget about it. Stop looking at them with the flesh as your main concern. And in place of that, Paul says, strive to know them as you know Christ now, which is to say, spiritually. And here's what he means. As I look out in this room, and I see many in in the room I know, and I know your faith, I know your confessions, I know I'm looking at believers in the case of so many of you. I know you to be brothers and sisters in the Lord with me. I know that one day we will all be in new physical bodies, eternal bodies that won't have sin and will never die. I know that we will be living again on this earth when Christ returns. We'll be in the kingdom. We'll be serving Him. Some of you will be in government positions perhaps above me or below me or next to me. Perhaps one of you might be my next door neighbor in Maui when God gives me that island. Sorry, John. I'll let you visit we're joking a little about it because it seems so far off it's surreal I know but it's real according to the Bible and when those days come I will look at you with spiritual eyes because that's all I'll have and I propose to you that we'll have memory because scripture seems to suggest that and as such we may know some things about our past here but they're not going to come to mind in such a way that they burden us that's scripture's promise but the point is this Why do I want to look at you any differently than the way I will look at you in eternity? Why waste time looking at you in a sense that I know is passing? So I look at you as a sister in the Lord, a brother in the Lord, one who will be with me in eternity, in sinless eternity. That's the way I'm to look at you right now. So I keep that future in mind as I relate to one another. And I live for Christ to pursue his mission. What was his mission? Showing the love of God to fallen people. So why wouldn't I want to do that for you? Notice in verse 17, Paul summarizes our new perspective by reminding us we have all become new creatures by our faith. There's a lot of us who know I am a new creature in Christ. Old things have gone away, new things have come, right? Here's where it comes from. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me explain exactly what he means so that none of us are misunderstanding it. If someone is in Christ, Paul says, which is to say, bluntly, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and are saved by that faith, that's what it means. If that's you, then you are a new creature according to Scripture. Now, of course, your physical being hasn't changed, so we know that means he's talking about your spiritual nature. And he says, that old nature you had prior has passed away and a new one has come in its place. And what that past nature was, was the one that you inherited from Adam. Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 2. I'll just briefly read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says, this is speaking of the believer before they became a Christian. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, of the spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's a pretty condemning view of who we used to be, isn't it? But it's so accurate. Paul says, before you come to know Christ, you are alive, but only in an earthly sense. You and I were otherwise dead. That is to say, the Spirit in us was dead. Paul calls us walking corpses. And that's literally the case. We lived out of the lust of our flesh. We were by nature people who were due only wrath by God. And Paul says, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of that's passed away. It's all gone. In fact, the Greek word for old means ancient. Ancient things have passed away. He's talking about the fact that these things originate in the times of ages past. When Adam fell, the nature you inherited goes all the way back to the the garden fall, but that's all gone away by faith. And then in verse 17, he says, New things have come, and that's the aorist tense of the verb, that is to say, we have received something new and it continues on forever. Our old nature will never return. So, you look upon each other in the faith, fellow believers, as those who have become new, in spirit, with a new body soon to follow, don't consider the past. But friends, that's only half the story. What do we do with the rest of the world? You know, as Paul said, look on no one according to the flesh. He didn't just say, no believer. Now, how does that change our view of the unbeliever, of those in the world who have yet to know Christ? Paul's saying, well, you can't look at them in the flesh either. Well, what is that saying? Because they don't have a new spirit. What else am I to choose from? Well, what he means is that they're not your enemy. Don't look at them the way you might be tempted to look at them. Friends, unbelievers are going to look down on your faith. They're going to mock you. They're going to think you're foolish or they're going to dismiss you. Some will hate you and perhaps even some will persecute you because of what you believe. That's the promise of Scripture. Now, you can choose to return that. You can take hate and return it with hate. You can take judgment, return it with judgment. You can talk nicely only to those who know you in in faith and are nice to you. But as Jesus said, well, even the Gentiles do that. That is to say, even the unbelievers do that. Why would you expect credit for just doing what the world does? Instead, he says, look at them with spiritual eyes. But here's the thing, that you're not looking upon them as those who will be in the kingdom with you, because that's yet to be determined. Nonetheless, you look at them with your own spiritual eyes. That is, you look at that person as the very one you're called to serve. They're the reason you're still on earth. You ever ask yourself that question? Why, once you come to know Jesus, why don't you just go to heaven right away? Why do we have to stay here on earth for any length of time after we come to faith? Why don't we just move on to it? The answer is right here. Because we have a mission. And the mission is in God's plan to happen through us as his representative. Notice in verses 18 through 19, Paul says, We have been given a ministry, he says, a ministry of reconciliation. What is a ministry of reconciliation? It sounds like marriage counseling. It's not that. So what is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, he's speaking about the reality of sin. Friends, you've all heard this, right? Sin is the thing that separates us from God. The reason you cannot go to heaven apart from Christ is because in a sinful state, there is no provision in heaven for sin. Sin goes one place only. And so as a result of our sin, we're separated from God. In fact, the scriptures say He is our enemy as a result of sin. And that sin, since it requires judgment, can be dealt with only by a payment that satisfies the wrath of God. And God says in Scripture that His Son's payment of death on the cross is the only one He'll accept. Scriptures tell us God so loved the world that He placed His Son on the cross to die in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. That's what we mean by the ministry of reconciliation. It's a ministry, or the word ministry just means service. It's a service to the world that goes out saying, you guys are like we used to be. You're far from God and no hope in this world. But we have a message for you. This message tells you how you can be reconciled with God. That's the message of the gospel. And make no mistake, friends, the Bible is clear that there is one and only one way that you can be reconciled to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way, period. And that message is what Christ has given to us so that we would take it to the world. But you see the problem, don't you? If you are too busy viewing the world according to the flesh, which Paul says we're not allowed to do, well, then you're not likely to pursue them very hard for Christ, are you? I mean, you might say you are. We might think we're willing to do that. But it's really hard to love mean and ugly people, isn't it? And I don't mean physically ugly. I mean people who are being hard to love. It's really hard to want to help those people, isn't it? If you view them according to the flesh... The first time they say something that you don't like, the first time they resist, what are you going to do? Well, I'll move on. And there is some biblical sense in that. There is timing. There is the need to move and go where the Spirit is leading us. We all understand that. But we may make token efforts at reaching someone if we're motivated by the flesh, by what we see in them, by how they treat us. We may give up. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah. You know, Jonah, he was supposed to go preach to the enemies of Israel, and he didn't want to because he knew if he went, God would save them. And the last thing he wanted to see was God saving Israel's enemies. That's why he ran so far from God. That's why God had to swallow him with a fish and swim him back to where he was supposed to go. This is a guy who wasn't afraid of the enemy. He was afraid that God was going to get his way. And it disappointed him. God finally gets them there. You know how the story ends, right? He's vomited out of the fish and he finally out of sheer force of God he ends up in Nineveh now let me ask you this how enthusiastic do you think he was when he preached the gospel in Nineveh he probably barely even let it come out of his mouth God in his omnipotence and, and power saved them anyway but the point is this if we take a Jonah-like thinking to our sharing of the message we're likely to look upon someone prejudging them and saying oh, this person has no hope there's got to be somebody else around here I can save who's more likely Right? We can get that way and we don't even know it. Paul says, you are an ambassador for Christ. You cannot see the world according to the flesh or you can't do your job. Literally, he says, the Lord is present in you through the Spirit and is working in that moment to talk to somebody through you. The Lord making an appeal through you. That's how important it is to God. So, you don't look at the unsaved world according to the flesh. You look at them as not yet believers. Not yet believers. Because literally, friends, every single human being on earth is a not yet believer. Because Scripture says that in a day to come, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Christ, so there will never be anyone by the end of all time and eternity who will not have confessed Christ. But here's the deal. If you confess Christ before you die, you gain the benefit of His sacrifice. If you do not, and you... Go to your grave and stand before the Lord at the judgment and then you confess Christ because it's self-evident at that point you're standing before Him. Well, at that point it's too late because it's now being done by sight, not by faith and there's no credit for sight. So we want our friends, our family, our neighbors, any associates, anyone we run into to know the truth of who Jesus is because the alternative is so unbearably hard to imagine. That's why Paul ends in verse 20. Look at his rallying cry to the entire church. He says, we beg men and women to be reconciled to God. Which is to say, we work with urgency and persistence to convince the sinner of their impending jeopardy. Of the reality that they are just a heartbeat away from something they cannot imagine. But then, friends, we follow that with the good news. And it is indeed good news. That Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father through Him alone. He knew no sin Himself, but He became sin. That is to say, He stood in our place and He died for our sake. Easter is reminding us that sinners need saving. That's the message we're trying to take to the world. And friends, I just want to end with the very beginning of chapter 6. Paul says in verse 1, speaking as it were to that one who is still living on borrowed time, he says, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're still in that foxhole, so to speak, you're still under threat of death, Christ has died to set you free from that moment. You just have to accept the payment. Paul says, we, working with the Lord, are speaking to you right now. Jesus saved us and sent us into the world to find you this morning. So that you would hear this message. And as Paul says, this is the day. Not because there can't be another day. Not because this is the only day. But friends, because now is the time for you. Because as you sit here, as you listen to this message, you're penally aware of the truth of what it's saying, but you're also inhibited by something. Otherwise, the day of salvation would have already come for you. But today it's come. You may be the worst person in the world, or you may be the choir boy that's never done anything wrong. It makes no difference, because you're not good enough to get to heaven based on who you are. Because only God is good enough. That's why a way was needed. That's why we had to have a Messiah. And He granted us one so that we could be reconciled. As Paul says, now is the time. Friends, that's what Easter is about. Easter's not a myth. It's not about rabbits and eggs and all the rest. It's about one man dying to save a world who needs him. And not staying dead. Raising three days later so that he could prove to you and I that when he says he has the power to raise you from the dead, he proves it in his own life. You can put your trust in many things, including things that are still dead, like Muhammad, like Buddha, Like David Koresh. You pick the wacko of the week. They come, they go. They claim, and they die. And their death proves their claims invalid. Only one man has come, said he would die, did so, and came back to life as promised three days later, walked for 50 days on this earth witnessed by hundreds of people according to Paul and proved in that way that he has the power of life over death may I submit to you that if you're trusting in something or someone to save you from death who has not returned themselves that is a folly put your trust in the one who came back on Easter let's pray Heavenly Father we preach a message like this because you gave it to us it's not our message Father, it's your message we thank you Father that you've equipped us with such a powerful message, such a wonderful good news message to a world that needs it. But Lord, you also have asked us to be your feet and your hands, your ambassadors. And so, Father, perhaps it would be in order for us to say, forgive us for at times being unwilling or reluctant to speak truth when it was needed, uh, perhaps being too cautious, perhaps prejudging, perhaps just being fearful, who knows. But Father, we ask that on this Easter as we came thinking about jesus on the cross perhaps this is the day you just you give us that renewed desire to speak truth to a world that has to hear it let us be bold but also kind let us be forthright and also sensitive father let us have the the voice that christ had where he could speak to a woman at a well or he could speak to the pharisees and He spoke truth in all cases. Let us be the one who can move between different groups in that way and and be your ambassador. And Father, let us never forget the true meaning of Easter so that we can always keep it in in the front of our minds as we seek to serve you in the days that remain. And then, Father, I ask for those in here who may have heard a message for the first time and considered it maybe all anew and, and in better ways than they have before. For them, maybe this is the day of salvation. I pray, Father, that it would be. Their confession would be one they'd make. Not because they're forced, not because an emotional appeal led them to do it, because, only because the Spirit in them has, has brought them to this conviction. I pray, Father, for that outcome and that they would, be know, they would know you in a new and eternal way so that the old things of their nature would pass as it has for us and that new things would come. Thank you, Father, for a small church that preaches the Word. Send us out of here, Father, to preach it to more people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.